Positive Aging with Patricia Raskin is the podcast that provides empowerment, inspiration, and education for older adults to thrive in their golden years. It's produced by Rhode Island PBS and made possible through the generous support from South Coast Health, Cochlear, Greenwood Credit Union, Bama Companies, and Balancing Life's Issues. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Positive Aging. I'm Patricia Raskin. Today, we're talking about beneficial effects of exercise on metabolism and brain health. An estimated 6.5 million Americans aged 65 and older are living with Alzheimer's in 2022. 73% are age 75 or older. There was a recent article in National Geographic about how scientists are learning how muscles in motion can improve cognition and shield against diseases like Alzheimer's, paving the way for new treatments. In today's interview, we will explore how exercise combats cognitive impairment in aging and the neuroprotective effects of exercise on Alzheimer's disease. My guest is Dr. Christian Ran. She's an assistant professor in medicine at the Cardiovascular Research Center and McCant Center for Brain Health of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston where she leads the program in neuroprotection in exercise. Welcome, Dr. Ram. Thank you very much, Patricia. It's a pleasure to be here today. So first question, how does exercise protect our brain from aging and from neurodegenerative diseases? This is a really interesting question, Patricia. So there are basically two mechanisms at play. So first, exercise reduces a number of what we call modifiable risk factors for developing dementias. This includes, for example, um, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, or obesity. And secondly, um, there's more and more research that shows that exercise itself has like what we call intrinsic effects on the brain. And when I say the brain, it's mainly the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain very important for learning and memory. And what exercise does is it improves the um, it can increase the hippocampal volume, it enhances blood flow to the brain, it can even stimulate the genesis of new neurons or new blood vessels in the brain. And also exercise um, helps the neurons that you already have in the brain to form new connections or strengthens the connection they already have. How does exercise then, based on what you said, improve your focus and your concentration? Um, so that's again, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, there is um, blood flow that is, um, you know, important that you change in exercise. And there are certain areas in the brain that are important for focus and attention. So exercise can help you um, to improve blood flow to these areas. It also reduces uh, stress and anxiety, which can impair attention and focus. That would then tie into if, if it improves focus and concentration, then would it also improve learning and memory? the more you exercise. Yes, yes, that's that's what it does. So there are studies um, in mice and in humans that show that there are very strong effects of exercise. And as you mentioned, yes, um, there are um, what you call dose-dependent effects. So that means the more you exercise or the more strenuous the exercises, the more benefits you see on the parameters I mentioned and also on cognitive function. I know that when I exercise, there is an effect of calmness and there's also that positive effect that the serotonin is released in the brain. It's like those happy chemicals. So I, it really strengthens my mood. Talk about that. 
Yeah, so that's, as you said, that's an important effect, um, you know, that you get a rebalancing of neurotransmitter that are, you know, shifting towards um, positive mood. Um, you had also mentioned the, the work on, on muscle. So there's interesting work that there are actually also chemicals released from the skeletal muscle that can help you break down transmitters that are bad for your brain um, and that can cause bad mood. Um, to um, where exercise helps with that. And the other thing which is important as well is, as you said, like, you know, you kind of start shifting away from a lot of multitasking to have monotasks. And we have there's research showing how important that is um, to, to do that. So it's important not to multitask, but to focus on one thing at a time. It seems that our brains are built for that. And that is basically a relief from the brain if you can do that. And also, some people also haven't probably experienced that, that, you know, a lot of the exercises being done in, in nature, outdoors, green spaces. So, again, there's a lot of research showing that this um, is also important for lifting your mood or reducing stress levels. We know, again, reduced stress levels are important um, to reduce, um, you know, anxiety. This podcast is made possible in part by South Coast Health, a not-for-profit community-based health system that provides a clinical and caring experience to every life we touch in southeastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island. To learn more, visit southcoast.org. Do you think another factor is just being outside in the environment, you know, with, uh, with the fresh air, the clean air, and the beauty you see around you? I think so. I think that's important. Again, it shifts away from, you know, the modern multitasking, you know, like looking at your cell phones, checking your social media accounts. But also, if you think about, you know, humans have developed over a long time during evolution. And we were really, you know, built to be in the wide open, to observe our surroundings, to interact, to be in nature. So I think one of these reasons why we feel this calming effect is that you put yourself back, um, you know, where you originally, you know, your brain originally was built for. Hmm. Let's talk about brain cells, because there's something called neuroplasticity, where the more we learn something, the more we learn something new, then we can grow new brain cells. How does that work? Yeah, that is a really interesting phenomenon. Like for a long time, people thought that, you know, the adult brain is very static and there's nothing really being built. But research has shown first in mice that there are actually these stem cells that can make new neurons. And then a very exciting finding um, has shown that actually specific running exercise is what, what is, um, stimulates the genesis of, of new neurons. So um, not all the areas in the brain can be new neurons. Um, it's specifically an area in the hippocampus, which I had mentioned is important for learning and memory. And now we understand that these new neurons are really important for certain parts of cognition, which we call pattern separation. So there's kind of that you can remember where you parked your car, that you can remember where you put your mm -hmm. key. And this is something that, especially in aging, Alzheimer's disease is one of these cognitive tasks lost very early on. And we have really great data on the molecular mechanisms in mice. And there's new research also showing that this also is happening in humans. And again, that also in dementia, that's one of the mechanisms that's not working the generation of new neurons. Hmm. How are you studying this exactly in the lab? Talk about what the mice do. Yeah, so um, we are, you know, we are what we call a preclinical um, mouse lab. So what we do is to exercise the mice, we actually place them into running wheels, um, you know, and the, the exciting thing is mice really love to run. So if you give them access to a running wheel, they will run five to seven kilometers 
a day, or usually they run at night. So if you think about it, that's pretty amazing how small mice are. Um, and uh, uh, one thing I always joke about is like, you know, we don't know why if you put a running wheel into the office of a human, they don't really exercise as much as the mice do. Um, and some scientists even have placed running wheels into the wild and have shown that, um, you know, wild animals like to exercise on these wheels. So they really love it. They do a lot of exercise. It really, you know, boosts their cardiovascular fitness in there. And then what we can do is we can, for example, treat the mice with different drugs to find out, you know, is this, you know, if you, for example, have mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, if this is improving cognition, um, we can also study their cells and tissues to understand better on down on the molecular level, what are these molecular mediators um, that get turned on or off during exercise and really help us to understand um, down to the single molecule how exercise is reshaping your brain. But how can you study the effects of Alzheimer's on a mouse? So that's a good question. Um, so what we have is we call them um, mouse models of Alzheimer's disease. So we do know that there are certain genes that when they get mutated, cause Alzheimer's disease. That's what we call familial Alzheimer's disease. So we can, in the lab, make mice that have these mutations the same as the humans have, and then they will develop um, certain aspects of Alzheimer's disease. Again, a mouse is not a small human and Alzheimer's disease is a very complex disease. So we cannot completely model in a lab, but we can definitely uh, model certain, certain aspects that help us to understand what, what is going wrong in Alzheimer's disease in the brain. Why do you choose mice? Why is that the animal you choose? Yeah, so that has historically grown um, for one reason is, you know, mice are, you know, small enough that you can keep them in a lab. They, as people probably know, they multiply a lot. And then also um, for making these genetic models, their genome is very easily to manipulate. So you can either knock out genes, it means like you take out the genes so they can't make that anymore, or you can introduce new genes to, um, you know, help them make things that they wouldn't um, normally make. So that's how we ended up in, in mice. And the other thing is also that you really can model, like, you know, Alzheimer's disease is difficult, but exercise you can actually model very well in mice. So a lot of the effects that I described are actually happening in mice and humans. Hmm. Now, you use some technologies. You know, these are words that we probably just need some explaining, like RNA sequencing and high-resolution mass spectrometry and advanced molecular-based screenings. How can you break that down for us to sh explain how you use that? Yeah. So um, what we do is we really, as I said, we try to understand how the molecules work. So for example, RNA sequencing, what that means is if you maybe remember from your biology um, um, studies is that we have genes that make RNA that then make proteins. So with RNA sequencing, we can look at a single time point at all the RNA that's made in the cell, so all the genes that are turned on in the cell. And with like now what we call single cell RNA sequencing, we can actually not look at all the cells. We can just look at one single cell at a certain time to see what it's making. Um, high resolution mass spectrometry, this is not, this is looking at the proteins. And high resolution means we can even measure hormones, you know, such as iris in that are in low, like nanogram per milliliter concentrations in the blood, and we can measure um these um, in, in complex biomatrices at the protein level. And what we call uh, molecular-based screenings. So this is, for example, if you want to do, um, you know, test a lot of different drugs and you have um, 
you know, a cellular assay. And then you can do like high content imaging where you can, you know, at a very quick time, you can measure what we call a reporter, like something that the cell turns on if the cell is, let's say, doing better, like it's turning on a certain pathway. And then you can basically imaging all of that in like a 96 or 384 well plate and, and um, assess that in a very quick um, amount of time. This podcast is made possible in part by Cochlear, the global leader in implantable hearing solutions, helping people of all ages to hear and connect with life's opportunities. To learn more, visit www.cochlear.us slash aging. I mean, it's fascinating to listen to this and to see what you can see in the lab. And, you know, and we'll talk about the future in a minute, but how much exercise do you think we as humans need? I mean, what's the amount? What's the type of exercise? Is it just movement? Can it be cooking and cleaning? Can it be, you know, walking half a mile or two miles? I mean, what is it? Yeah, very good question. And the good news is that, you know, all exercise counts. So we usually call what you described as like cooking and cleaning and physical activity. But there's really good data that about 6,000 to 8,000 steps a day reduce overall cause of motility. And there's a recent study just came out um, that came out where they showed that as little as like 3,000 800 steps a day can reduce the risk of dementia by 25%. Mm. The maximum benefit, you have to walk almost these typical 10,000 steps a day. And um, what I also had mentioned is there's a lot of data showing that there's a correlation to intensity, meaning if you can do more intense exercise, you're actually going to have more benefits. Mm. What about, um, we talked about dementia, can it be reversed with exercise? Um, yeah, so um, we have really good data that there's prevention of dementia with exercise. And in mouse models where we control a lot of the external circumstances a little bit easier and time the interventions, it also has been shown that um, exercise, exercise can slow down cognitive decline. And again, there are studies in human patients showing that even in patients that you develop dementia as long as you boost, you know, they, they call the cardiorespiratory fitness. So the, um, how do you say, the cardiovascular fitness, you can actually um, stop cognitive or not stop, but at least slow down cognitive decline. However, I would caution to against the expectation that just exercising will cure um, dementia. During Alzheimer's disease, neurons die, and we do not have evidence that exercise or any other intervention for that matter could completely reverse that. Hmm. What what happens if you start exercising as an older adult? Let's say you haven't exercised, you're 55, 60, 65, even 70, and you're concerned. Is Are there still benefits if we start older? Yes, absolutely. There are benefits. And again, there's a great study, um, again, in mice where they had mice that had never exercised. They were very old. You start exercising them and they had a huge improvement in cognitive function. And the same applies to uh, to humans that even if you start exercising as an older individual, you can still have cognitive benefits. The only thing I would caution you if you, you know, if you have pre-existing health conditions that you're concerned about, please talk to your healthcare provider about what's the type of exercise that you can do and how much you can exercise. Mm -hmm. And one thing we also want to say is 
endurance exercise is really what gives you most of the cognitive benefits, like all the exercise that gets your heart rate up. However, as an older individual, you also should pay attention to exercise that um, gives you muscle strength, improves your flexibility and balance to prevent falling as you get older. So maybe lower weights, but longer amount of time? For example, lower weights, um, you know, as I said, even, you know, the, you know, tracking your steps and try to, you know, maybe get one more walk in every day, you know, maybe do a walk with a friend every day, um, just to kind of, um, you know, do as much as you can. And that's also something I would like to stress is, it's really okay to exercise to the best of your abilities and not to feel bad if you can't do more. For example, my, my own father has um, health conditions that prevent him from exercising, a lot however he does you know and i'm very proud of that he uses the tracking app on his phone and he tries to get in as many steps every day as he can and i think that's like what everybody should inspire to do um dr ran where does medication play a role in helping brain function more optimally can it replace exercise yeah i get very often asked like hey when do you finally have this exercise pill so i can just lie on the couch and I don't have to worry about them? <laughs> Yeah. So I would just want to say, um, you know, exercise has so many important effects on the brain, the cognitive function, the mood, attention that we have discussed. And then beyond that, again, you know, there's uh, um, important effects on muscle strength, on, on metabolism, on cardiovascular health. So this idea we have like one pillar, like one pillar, it's a magic bullet, capture all the effects of exercise. I highly doubt that. However, that being said, you know, many patients... Um, you know, especially in the aging population, are not able to perform the exercise that would be necessary to boost their brain health. So I think for that, you know, um, um, interventions, pharmacological interventions would be really important. And it also might be that, as I mentioned, you know, for, you know, really treating dementia, we might have to boost pharmacologically beyond what um, exercise could do with the brain. So I do believe there's a critical need for medication that is, you know, encapsulate the neuroprotective effects of exercise. Now, I know we talked in the beginning about how exercise helps you improve your focus and concentration and learning and memory and new brain cells. We didn't talk as much about how it helps you decrease your feelings of anxiety. We have so much anxiety in today's world, particularly with COVID and whenever we have uncertainty that always breeds anxiety. So talk about how exercise decreases that feeling of anxiety. It makes you feel good, but does it increase those anxiety feelings? Uh, yes. So as we kind of touched on earlier, so there are a lot of chemicals in your brain that um, guide your mood. Um, you know, we, we, you have mentioned serotonin is one of the ones that's well known or dopamine, the one that's the kind of like the good feel, um, um, also like the, the reward hormone. So exercise can boost a lot of these neurotransmitters. It can kind of shift the balance into that. Um, there's also um, research that shows that actually your muscles release an enzyme that can um, break down uh, a chemical that gives you neuroinflammation, which is something, again, that's bad for your brain. And then, um, you know, lastly, we already had touched on, um, you know, this, um, you know, getting getting out, as you just mentioned, these like ruminating thoughts, you know, getting out there, you know, doing something that's good for you. Um, you know, if you have exercise goal, meeting exercise goals, these are all things that, you know, um, can help you to combat um, anxiety. Mm. What are the new treatments in the future for combating neurodegenerative diseases and Alzheimer's? What do you see? What's the crystal ball? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm, 
Yeah. So I think, you know, we are all in agreement that preserving cognitive function is a major challenge in an increasingly aging population. And we really need innovative approaches to tackle this really, um, you know, complex problem and complex diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, of course, obviously I'm biased. I'm an exercise neuroscientist myself, but I do think that, um, you know, developing drugs based on exercise has great promise. Because the great thing about exercise is it's already doing to our brains what we want to drug to treat dementia is doing. You know, it reduces amyloid plaques, neuroinflammation, it can give you new neurons, new synapses. So I think, therefore, if you can't figure out on a molecular level which are the molecular mediators of these neuroprotective effects, I'm confident we can exploit them therapeutically to treat AD. It might not be today or tomorrow, but um, we will get there in the future. Mm-hmm. So you you see certain drugs that will help with this? Yes, I, I will. So that's kind of the, the, the research we're doing in our lab. And the other, you know, I'm not the only one in the field. There's a, there's a large field. And this is the idea to kind of use these natural hormones, um, you know, natural, and we call them sometimes systemic factors that are, you know, released in exercise or, you know, that are more prevalent in young than in old brains and to turn them into treatments um, for Alzheimer's disease. Um, Drug development is always a long road, but I think I have seen some exciting work that um, hopefully is going to turn into a drug in the in the future. Yeah. And but that will not supplant that won't take the place of exercise, correct? That's what I had tried to make the point is it will probably encapsulate certain benefits of exercise, maybe anti-dementia effects, but it will be able to encapsulate everything that exercise is doing that was kind of what i wanted to say you know um you know the, you know if we talked about you know it's important to keep your muscle strength and flexibility up um it's important to improve your cardiovascular health you know to prevent strokes and other things so um i think that's that's what i always try to kind of make the distinctions we are not trying to replace exercise we try to pharmacologically boost certain benefits that exercise can give the brain This podcast is made possible in part by Greenwood Credit Union, which offers locally-based full-service banking where our focus is on you. To learn more, visit greenwoodcu.org. Last question. What do you feel from doing this work? I mean, you're in the lab and you're watching it every day. How has this affected you in your own life, just in terms of the way you think and your life um i think um so i think the good thing is when you when you when you read about all these great effects of exercises you feel have some some ownership of your own destiny how how can you age and that there are certain things that you can do yourself you know for you for your body for your mind to um, get you into healthy aging um, and the other thing, um, you know, I'm a scientist, you know, we work in drug development, this idea of, you know, that my work is hopefully um, contributing to the development of something against Alzheimer's disease, which is really a dreadful disease. And I think that gives life um, meaning that, you know, you're doing something good with, with your work every day. Anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Ran, about the research that you're currently doing? So yeah, um, so we and uh, our own lab, as you have mentioned in the introduction, is we work on a novel exercise hormone called irisin that's released in skeletal muscle during exercise in mice and humans. And our work has shown that if you treat mouse models of Alzheimer's disease, even once they already have development 
of significant pathology with irisin. And this was uh, able to improve cognitive function and reduce um, what we call neuroinflammation, one of the bad effects of exercise. So we think this is, um, you know, could be one of the key pieces of um, moving this research um, on how to encapsulate the neuroprotective effects of sites in the drug move forward. So there's a lot of hope. Yes, there is. Thank you so much, Dr. Christian Ren. Thank you for being on this program and enlightening us and educating us. Positive Aging with Patricia Raskin is produced by Rhode Island PBS and made possible in part by South Coast Health, Cochlear, Greenwood Credit Union, Bama Companies, and Balancing Life's Issues. For more information, please visit ripbs.org slash positive aging.